joining me today on this episode of the of the Bandwagon Podcast is Harvinder Singh Mandir. Um, he's a writer, thinker, and a and a Sikh academic. So uh, welcome to the show, um, Harvinder. Thank you very much for having me on, Ricky. Yeah, that's cool. I'm gonna start calling you Harvey now, as I as I know you anyway. So I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna, right. It would make it. It would make it a lot more relaxed for everyone to hear as well. So yeah, of course you can do that. Every now and again, I'm gonna bust out a Ranjit back to you as well. <laughs> That's cool. That's not a problem. You do win the award just to start off with the best background. So, like, uh, legitly, have you read all of them books? I've read some part of every single one of these books. Uh, I d- I did like a little bit of a stop take during COVID lockdown, like where um. I think out of all the books I've got, I've got about eight or nine thousand pounds worth of books. So I can't count how many books they are, but I know that's how much I've spent over the years. Um, so I've I've read more than uh, three quarters of the books. I've read all of them. And then there's about a quarter of the books where I'm just still digging in and picking chapters and doing little bits and pieces. Is there like particular kind of genres or particular kind of writers that you, who are your favourite? Uh, so three whole tiers of this case behind me is like Sikh and Punjabi books so mainly Sikh ideology Punjabi history Sikh history um that's that's kind of my my go-to that's where whenever something new comes out I buy it immediately make sure I've got it whether I read it straight away or not pick up just read the intro put it down go back to it later um in terms of fiction there's 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 one small section of about 15 books of fiction I don't really read fiction very much Mm. Um, my wife's got a bookcase and hers is just all fiction so I when I feel like I need to read some fiction I dip into hers but that's not very often is that science fiction or is that all Harry Potter stuff or what no 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 she's <laughs> a chick flick type book but um now nah, just you know like normal fiction like the stuff I've got up here is the classics like the old man and the sea Hemingway um Dostoevsky just reading some of the some of the kind of big novels and things like I have those on the bookcase and I've read those over time just to try and understand them a little bit more. But um, the the rest of the nonfiction stuff is just really around politics and current affairs. Mm. So even even the, a lot of the non-Sikh, non-Punjabi stuff that I read is mainly centered around political movements. Uh, I've got a lot of move. I've got a lot of books on the Irish Republican movement and then things like uh, gang culture in the United States. Uh, how you know the CIA things like that? I try and read up on a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I did politics as a degree in uh, in Nottingham, and uh, I think I did the, one of my favourite books was obviously is like The Prince Machiavelli. Um, I've always found that as a fascinating book to kind of like. It always it was written in such a way that it was like it was so basic, but it was really really powerful. Have you have you ever? I've got it here behind me. I've got yeah, these go. copies of it. Actually, I've got hardbound and then I've got a soft cover. But did you did you read that before you got to university as well? No, I only read it during during university. Wait, you, like, got, you got lucky because even though you were doing it in a politics degree, you go more in depth, right? Yeah. We had to do that as part of our A level history, and oh my god, that was hard. like as you're a seventeen year old, most of your day is spent like you know lessons just get in the way of all the gup shop you get to do at school in it and wandering mm-hmm. around in your gundi and go chip shop at lunch so lessons used to get in the way and then when you were going to lessons and you were trying to interpret Niccolò Machiavelli's The Prince it was like what the hell is this so I'm still trying to work it out if not, I'm honest with you I'll be, I'll be honest with you man it's like 
I really struggled in, the, in that because all my mates and everyone that I knew of, they were either doing the typical Desi ones and it like solicitor, uh, IT, um, all this C++, that's all that used to be spoken about. And then um, I was the only one doing like a different, well, I was the only, there was only a couple of us operating who were on that whole course. Right. And, um, and it's a couple of times I used to go out and chill out their houses and it, uh, a lot of my mates. And then we used to just play Pro Evo. It would just be pairs. We'd be playing uh, Pro Evo. And even as they're playing, they're talking about like political systems. They're talking about this. They're talking about, and I'm like going, like, when do you chill out? And yeah. even at the dinner table, they would like still carry on talking. And I was like, you know, in like the, the household, I was, I was built up. It was never about, it's like, what come you got, we got to do on the weekend? What wedding program? Who's this? It was never had that political discussion. So I always felt, even though I did like a gov- uh, government politics kind of A-level, I, I just felt like I was so light years behind in terms of like learning about political philosophy and actually knowing about it. Because right. you know, you're only getting a limited amount of stuff that's on the news, but to go in, in depth, um, you can see these guys, even at their own their own family homes, were talking about political issues all the time. I mean, yeah, we I had the same experience. So we were talking about politics all the time, but I have the same feeling as you. And it's not like imposter syndrome. Someone tried convincing me a while back that it's just, you know, that imposter syndrome you have that you feel like you're not able to keep up with all the people who had the privilege of learning about these things day to day and being from households like that. But um, it's not that. It's just that sometimes the mark isn't capable yeah. of keeping up with this stuff. I feel like that now. So look, all these books and everything, the only thing they've taught me is that I don't get anything. None of it makes sense to me. But you just keep trying in it and you plug away. Yeah. So on that kind of theme, you put on um, some of your courses. So just give, give us a little bit of a background on some of the courses that you're doing. And the follow-up question with that is then, you know, how do you cater for those people who might be in that room who might be suffering that imposter, imposter syndrome that we were just talking about then? Right. So, I mean, just as a bit of background. So I've been volunteering for an organisation called the Sikh Education Council uh, since like 1996. First time I ever taught like a lecture on one of their programmes. Um, and I was a product of their school anyway. So they were founded in 1983. I used to go to Gurmath camps that they ran in North Hertfordshire and Southall. And uh, I kind of grew up through their system, if you like, got to my teenage years and started teaching and lecturing here and there with the bits that I knew, Um, found that I had a bit of a knack for it, bit of a knack for like having a rapport with like, you know, students, making them laugh and stuff. And then throughout the early 2000s, mid 2000s, we were teaching me and my brother set up a uh, what we called Sikhi class, which was just basically like teaching Sikhi to young kids on a Friday night at the Gordora. And we had like, you know, it's a small town. It's a small town mentality, but it's a smallish area. It's not like one of the big cities in North Arts. And uh, we had like over 150 students at our peak. Um, We ended up having like eight, nine of us as teachers. And it was just little kids teaching them basics and stuff like that. But then, um, you know, I, I realized like I didn't really enjoy it very much. I wanted to speak to people at more of an adult level so that I'd get something out of the session just as much as they would. Because, you know, more adult people kids, teenagers, if you like, they ask more deeper questions or they ask hard questions. They're not afraid to do that. So you're then pushed and challenged to work out, work out more as well. So there's a course that we established in 2009 at the Sikh Education Council, uh, which we just simply call the Sikh Studies course. And it's a 14-week course where we teach Sikh history, culture, and ideology. We go in a chronological format. 
So we start in 1469, we bring it right up to the 21st century, what's happened in Sikhi, how we've got to the place we've got to today um, by way of, you know, the first Khalsa Republic in the 18th century, uh, the Sikh kingdom in the 19th century, and then the modern era that we're in today in migration patterns and what that looks like for Sikhs going forward. So we teach that as a 14-week course and then students who finish from that go on to what we call a year two course of study where we just look at different elements of Sikh history and culture. Mm. We delve in a little bit deeper to things like uh, what does it mean to be a Khalsa? What is, Sikh, what is Sikh polity? So I've got to talk about that with you at some point off camera because that's a really fascinating area. And obviously, you know, you haven't done politics, like it'll be interesting for you. What, what does Sikhi say politics is and what how does it fit with it? So we do modular studies like that. And most importantly, what we couple it with in, in the year two studies is something called Shabd analysis, which is where we get to grips with Guru Granth Sahib Gurbani and we start looking at different Shabads and we try and, we, we try and get students to develop their own toolkit for interpreting Gurbani, analyzing it, and then trying to apply it in their lives. Uh, and then we have a year three that once you finish year two, you can move into, which is um, personal research and like kind of personal one-to-one -one teaching studies. We have four sessions that we cover really in deep topics um, that are pure philosophy from Sikhi. And yeah, we have, we've had quite a lot of success with that over the last 11, 12 years. Uh, it's all free of charge. No one gets paid for teaching it. No one has to pay to come and learn from it. We've taught now over 500 students. They're not just uni students, there's people who are professionals. The oldest student I've ever had was about 68. Youngest student I've ever had is like 15. Uh, and uh, it's, it's kind of, it's a fun thing to do for me um, as an individual, but for the organization, it's now become like our bread and butter. Um, it's just a way of engaging people and giving them a lot of information. Everything's referenced. The further reading list by the end of year one is like, you know, about 30 books strong. You don't have to read all of them. It's just if you really want to get into it, we're, we're real believers in the at the council of give people access and let them do what they want. They shouldn't be beholden to sticking with you or just with, you know, these university professors or this college or that school should be able to work out stuff for themselves where they fit. So, like I said, it's a lot of fun for me. It challenges me and it's been a huge part of my growth over the last 10, 12 years. Yeah, I've, I mean, definitely we've had conversations before um i i remember when when i first met you it was oh wow this geezer actually knows what he's talking about like it was it wasn't just a story or anything like that it was like there was academic referenced in that way you know you're referencing so just going back to the, the imposter bit which i was mentioning before um did you was there an essence of that and an element when you first started the course? Because obviously you've you've experienced it personally when you were doing your your degree or whatever your studies were, or in or in, in private discussions. How did you combat that when you started this? So when I first started teaching this stuff, like at the university level, so we started in two thousand and nine, and we were teaching at university. You don't get course credit for this. It's not acknowledged. Mm. It's not part of a degree program. Sure. It's just taught by the Sikh societies. They organize it for us. Uh, any university that wants to do it can set it up basically. And obviously being local to London, we just teach it in London. So when I first started out in 2009, I was the opposite of imposter syndrome. I was like, right, I know everything. Let's go teach some of these. And then very quickly, you know, you're taught, now nah, you don't know nothing. And it's not because there's students who turn up who know loads either. 
it's just, like I said, the most important part of it. And the bit that's been the biggest growth for me throughout my 30s uh, as an individual was that learning that when people ask you questions, when people challenge you, um, not necessarily challenge you, but they, they, they want to know more and they delve deeper. That's when real learning begins. And that's where, you know, like you're saying about imposter syndrome. Now, after 12 years of teaching the course, reg every year without fail, I've taught it at some point as well as a number of other tutors. Like I, I now realize that I don't have a clue about any of it. Even with the referencing, it's good. It's, it, we're pointing people in a certain direction. And we, what, what, we, what we really tried to do with the course at year one level is connect dots. We want you to connect a dot from 1469 to now, like make a picture, connect dot the dot, right? And um, we, we do that. But at the same time, what that dot the dot does for me now is that it's almost like I'm moving further and further away from the picture. And the more I'm moving away from the dot to dot picture we create, the more I'm realizing I can't see it, I can't focus on it. And it's because you just realize there's just no end, no end to any of this stuff. So I have full imposter syndrome when I'm teaching now. Mm -hmm. One of the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm second guessing myself sometimes, but when I'm talking to students, particularly at the universities, when I'm talking to them every five minutes or 10 minutes, I'll say something that says, I don't know, I could be wrong. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that in my head and it just naturally comes out because you don't want them to take something you say as gospel and run with it, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine I'm talking about something like, let's take one of, the, one of the more common things you hear in like university lectures in Sikh societies and stuff is about gears, for example, keeping your gears and stuff. It's one of the most bullshit subjects to cover as well. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. Yeah, you, yeah, you can. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> one, out of one because I can't, I can't be bothered to edit it out. And the other one, it's a natural conversation. Exactly. You know, if I, if I swear. Then, exactly. Know. All right. Good. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a minimum, though. Anyway, uh, but, yeah, no, it is. It's like a, it's a bullshit topic because the only reason I've come up with over the years for keeping your gears as a sec is that inside there's this overwhelming urge for you to do it. That's it. All the other reasons we have are constructed and they're there and blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about sec now. I'm not talking about somebody's Amratari. You have a code of conduct you've got to follow, which says you've got to keep your keys. But if you're standard sec, like, and when I'm saying that, like I, I really couple it and house it with stuff, not to make the people who haven't kept their keys feel better about themselves, but because in my head, I'm like, I don't want you going away. Like when I was at uni, I only ever once went to a Sikh sock event and it did cover this kind of topic and I hated it. I couldn't believe they were doing it, but it was, you know, very shouting down at you, telling you, you've got to do this, you've got to do that until you do it, you're wrong. And um, I thought, you know, at the time I was a Muratari anyway, but I always thought to myself that, you know, if I suddenly took what you said and I was like, okay, I'm going to go keep it, but I didn't change any of the other behaviors in my life. What the hell have I kept my gears for? Now I'm, now I'm, now I'm visibly a sec keeping up the roof of the guru, projecting that I'm like the guru, I'm like a Khalsa, but I'm not living up to the inside, the, not just the inside, but your behavior, your mannerisms, all that stuff. And that's not good, right? So I, when I'm lecturing, I don't want to give something like that to someone where they think, oh, I've got to do this, go away and do it. And then they're not living up to the rest of it, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm now in my 40s and it's like, got 40 years of it. I've got 35 years of experience of learning about Sikhi and I still don't get it. I still mm -hmm. don't understand the big picture. You're never going to, right? It's so vast, life, existence, reality. And so what you start realizing is I've got to be very careful how much I say. 
Um, and I know it's hard to, for anyone who's watching who knows me, who comes to classes to believe, but I've actually started talking less and less as the years have gone on. Now, because I talk so much anyway, just but you, I, I still talk more than most people, but mm. it's now cut down massively because I realize when you say something, someone could take what you say and if they respect you or they're influenced by you, they could run with it. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. It scares the out of me like because I've got all those years of learning behind why I'm saying something or doing something mm. you've just heard that one fikra that one sentence you take it out of context and you run with it it's scary it scares me now didn't scare me 10 years ago but like I said that's growth that's what comes with being challenged and having that imposter syndrome I think is a brilliant thing I think it's beautiful it challenges you to step up every time to watch what you say to be careful um, and I'm really trying to I'm really trying to put that into practice in my mm. life at the moment. Mm. I mean, you were talking about, you know, just challenges, but through through your experience and through your learning, what do you feel are the biggest challenges that the that the Sikh community is is facing at the moment? They don't we don't know who we are. That's pretty much the biggest one. Mm. We're so far removed from Sikhi, and it's because Sikh culture got diluted naturally it was going to happen and it's happened previously in previous eras but it always came back the last time we had like a renaissance and, and sick culture got really embedded again was in the early 1900s late 1800s early 1900s but then with the advent of post-world war one post-world war two birth of india and pakistan uh mass migration we've lost our cultural identity so what, what does that mean? That means that sec, a sec used to know what they were. Today, we don't know who we are. A sec today, sec community as an individual or as a collective has become about go Gordora, Matatek, do seva, be good person. That's, that's true for anyone in existence. That's true for anyone in life. That's what you should be doing, right? Mm. He was about so much more than that. It was about emancipation while you're alive. We don't believe in a heaven and hell. Uh, you know, you you believe in like I'm going to be emancipated while I'm alive. I don't accept any less than that. And Punjabi people used to have that in them. Uh, Sikhs from Punjab used to have that in them, and that's kind of gone now. Now it's been watered down, like all religions. You know, this religion has this stuff, this way of worship. We have this way of worship. Uh, you know, these religions do this, and we do this. We kind of draw parallels with the rest of the world. And that means you lose your identity. I think that's a real sad thing. I think it's the biggest problem facing us. If we can get our culture back, sick culture back, you you solve a lot of our problems instantly. I, I didn't have, is there a roadmap to do that? I mean, you referenced it back in earlier times, the late 1800s. What was, what, what, what was happening around then that kind of you could draw the comparisons to? They they had a massive... I mean, the, the real movement then was called the Singh Sabalair. Most people have heard of Singh Sabha today as just the names of Gordori, but Singh Sabha was a lair, a movement. It wasn't actually a singular registered organization or anything like that. It was a movement to evoke the arts in particular and to express oneself. So the expression um, of Sikh writers, thinkers, poets, painters that came about at the turn of the 20th century was immense and it was, it was astounding. Like it was, it blew people's minds. And it made them realize where they fitted in in life and how that had been lost throughout the entire 19th century, throughout the 1800s. Even during what we call the golden period, 
or some people call it the golden period, the Raj of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, which take nothing away from Maharaja Ranjit Singh and that era. But at the same time, Sikhi got lost a lot during that time period, and especially the time period after it with the, you know, the coming of the British Empire. You can't lay everything at the door of the British. During Maharaja Ranjit Singh's reign, we lost our culture. And so during how, this- how, how, did, how, did, how did it get lost then? What was, uh, what because, was happening? Because we were in rule and we were in power, we had excess and you, you lost uh, the struggle. Life is in the struggle, right? It's quite a famous slogan. I, I never have been able to work out who said it first or who says it, but it's, a, I, it's like a principle I live by. Life is in the struggle. If you're not struggling, you ain't living. You're a zombie <laughs> around, right? Because there's no struggle. There's nothing to strive for. And uh, that life was in the struggle. When, when Maharaja Ranjit Singh's era made it, you know, in order to be in, his, in the upper echelons of his cabinet, his advisors, to be in certain sections of the armed forces, you had to be an Amritari. And so you just had people willy-nilly taking Amrit. Like, complete... Complete, I mean, you could draw parallels to today. People who had no business taking Amrit, people who had no business calling themselves Khalsa were, were doing that in order to rise up the ranks. And um, that kind of stuff was then, that, that diluted our culture. And when I'm talking about our culture, what does that mean? It means the way you live your life, the way you speak to people, the way you talk, the principles you live by. And the best example of that is, is you know, the, uh, the most important element of our lives, which is life and death, birth and death. Birth and death is something that was central to the way Punjabis used to live and even the rest of the subcontinent over time. And we lose that. And we definitely lost that in the 19th century where life became sacrosanct. So it became that at all costs, you must, you must try to survive and stay alive. Let, let your anak go, let your jameer go, let, let your conscience go, but don't let this breath go. You must stay alive. And, you know, that's a completely antithesis of Sikh culture. Sikh culture was, you know, and he says, I'm not going to read the Kalma, I'm not going to turn uh, Muslim. And, you know, that, that, you know, take my corpory off, take my scalp off and kill me. It doesn't matter. Next lifetime, we'll see where I go. That kind of culture has gone from us now. Now it became, fast forward to today, what we've now got is this YOLO. So, you know, you only live once. Everything yeah. for this lifetime is everything that's important. It's total opposite of sick thought of Gurmat. I can't, I, I saw it on Twitter. I saw it on Twitter. Someone wrote, Dil Saaf Jatta. Yeah. <laughs> and that cracked me up. I, I saw, that's, another, that's another one, yeah. I mean, I was on social media back then when that kicked off, but it, 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 it typifies that, that group that exists that says you just need to be Dil Saaf. And the immediate response to that used to be, like, you know, that, that thought process existed 50 years ago, 100 years ago. The immediate response to it was, well, how do you know you're Del Saf? What, what's your barometer? What are you measuring that by, mm. right? Who can say that Del is Saf? Here's the answer. That's how many people's Del is Saf, right? It's not because we're human beings and we all are and we're all learning and we're all growing. So cut this Del Saf rubbish out. Start working out what is life, what is growth. I'm trying to elevate myself to a higher state of consciousness. And through Gurmat, you do that through living everyday life, right? You live like we're doing, you raise a family, you talk to people, you embrace people of a different way of thinking than you, not just for the challenge, but because you want to be able to see, well, I wonder what their footsteps have walked. I wonder where they walked that made mm -hmm. them think like that. 
that for me is the most fascinating part of life. I can't stand the idea of living in a bubble of just being around people like me or people like, you know, who think like me or do everything exactly like me. And I, that's what I'm talking about with Sikh culture. That birth and death idea was central to it. When a, when a kid was born, you were happy, but not too happy. Now it's like ecstasy when a kid's born, right? It was the set, it was in my family when my daughter was born, ecstasy, right? Everyone was really happy, kids being born, blah, blah, blah. But that's over the top. And because you're over the top then, when someone dies, you go over the top when someone dies. Hi, hi, marge, marge, hi, kinna changa hondasi, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've been at funerals where someone's in their 90s and they died and people are like, hi, rabakion. And I'm like, how much longer did you want them to go? You are one ruthless geese. <laughs> Yeah, I did say I, I only once made that mistake at a family. Fortunately, my in-laws, but I, I once, made mistake, once made that mistake of saying to like, go to the next birth. And I think that's where I'm saying that culture was diluted and lost. Does it, it doesn't mean we want to die. Let me make that clear. It doesn't mean I want to die, I'm a jihadi, that kind of thing. What it means is you accept birth and death both as imposters and you are you're just rolling with that right you had birth that means death's inevitable accept it acknowledge it and when it comes don't say oh you went before your time no you didn't when you die it was your time mm. do you feel then like uh, you know th there's many different kind of campaigns and loads of th different issues happening but in general uh, would you say that especially outside of uh, outside of india that Sikhs have got a little bit too comfortable? Yeah, definitely. We, we're the, the ones who migrated are the problem. In Punjab, they still got, it's weird to say this, right? And you all understand this more than mm -hmm. anyone, but in Punjab, they've still got Sikhi in here, right? Mm -hmm. It's still in there. Even, even when they're taking Chitta and they're high as kites and doing the most messed up stuff, they still got a little semblance of Sikhi in here. Mm -hmm. We didn't. And that's natural. Like you got to, you got to work these things out. I think anyway, you've got to work these things out in order to combat them or to overcome them. And like you know, I, I don't know about you, Ricky, but, mm. but my grandfather landed on these shores. He came here to earn money, and he came here on a five-year visa. Then you know, extended it to ten years, and said, "Then we're going back." That's what he came with. And he's like, "We're only here for money. I'm not here for the weather. I'm here for money." So the problem is, none of us left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as they had, as soon as they had children, as soon as they started having children, my dad was 13 when he came over. And so he was he was still born in Punjab. That's why I think we've still got in my family, like I've been privileged enough, still have a semblance of that Sikhi spirit inside you, that Punjabi within you, because my mum and dad were both born in Punjab, they brought it with them a little bit. But it's inevitable, even with them, with me, that that migrant mentality takes over migrant mentality is let's earn money let's set ourselves up let's elevate ourselves to reach the the standards we we want to live at to be comfortable and so yeah it makes you weaker basically at a certain level like i said life is no more no longer in the struggle then is it mm. uh, and i know i know that's a very privileged thing to say as well because there's loads of punjabis in this country loads of sikhs in this country at anywhere in the west who, who are struggling every day and who are still striving to get to those places. Yeah. What I'm saying is their mentality, though, is the same as ours. It's just their status hasn't risen up to that level yet. You Not know, yet. you're in the middle classes or you're in the working, working classes and you're a little bit comfortable. 
that mentality now has all become about money and about comfortability. Let's say, like, I'll take myself as an example, and I know you as well. We're less money-minded, right? You're not always chasing, like, I've got to have the best car, I've got to have the biggest house. You want to be comfortable. That's the thing. And like I said, man, comfortability is death. Comfortability I, I, death. You know, because you, you you kind of you know you're always taught to work hard to get there you know to get to the next level you, you're always told like it's just the way of circumstance society is that your grades are going to be a little bit better than your competitors or even different races uh you know because it exists um i remember taking my daughter to um uh, hansworth so i was just, we were just driving around and then i and i i went up my old road and uh, I said, oh, look, this is, this is my house. And she's like, she looked at me and she goes like, she goes like, where's your drive? And I just realized that I realized at that point, I was like, oh my God. And no, then I was, then I was, things, then, yeah, but then I just said to her, you know, like there was no internet and like the face was just dropping. And, you know, my, my, my daughter's smart. She's really clever, but for them to kind of, if you think how much technology and, and lifestyles are changing in the, uh, in the last let's say 15 20 years they don't know anything they don't know anything better they've just only known what they've seen so trying to explain back to them and i just realized i've just become what my mom and dad used to say when they were when they were younger and that circle of life that just starts kicking in and you just i think it was that that realization i thought you know maybe these grays on my head are actually a reason i am getting a bit old in, in this way too Long live revolution. All it does is <laughs> that's all that happens. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. You, have you taken your kids around to like some of your old stomping grounds before? They might be a bit too young for some of the pubs and clubs, but have you taken them to like your old school and just shown them outside? And... Well, we got Bibi, in, in the hands of we got Bibi Narki, uh, Gordora there. So I do take I do take him there and I explain, you know, on, on the weekends, I used to take my baba. He wasn't, you know, wasn't well, but we'd make sure to go there. Um, I'd show around Hansworth, but Hansworth is like not the easiest place to kind of show around sometimes. Um, really, you know, looking back on it, got kind of lucky to come out of there like fairly unscathed, whereas yeah. a lot of people that I know have like, um, you know, unfortunately fallen away on the wayside. But what it also did was that those ones who are successful, like there's a, one of my mates, close mates of mine, he's like, who runs Fearless MMA. We had like this Sonny Hitman hero. He's a boxer. You know, they they use that mentality. You know that I think you've got to go through a bit of uh, trauma, not trauma. You, you've got to go through a bit of strife and that struggle. It gives you that motivation to uh, to push yourself forward. And I think that they've used that to be successful in their own careers. Um, yeah. But I've also kind of I've tried to I would be conscious of that conversation that I had with you know my daughter and I. Um, and I, I've tried to set up a little, little business for her to do, like understand the value of money. We're going to give it her anyway. I'm, I'm my son, going to give it him anyway. But they just need to know kind of like the value of life and the value yeah. of money. And I think that that's becoming harder and harder because, you know, I want to be able to do things a little bit. I mean, look how lazy this is, isn't it? You know, we're doing it over over the Internet, um, nice microphones, nice stuff at the background. But like, you kind of like, in a way, you know, I've earned my right to do that. I've earned it. And I, I, I conveniently shut down some of those conversations in my head in order to, you know, I don't want to think about that. Do you know, do you know one of the, because the reason I was asking about the stomp grounds, it's funny you say like, we've earned the right to get to this point. But then sometimes I hark back to um, not, not little things like bookcases and that, but certainly events in our lives. 
are always, I, I look back and it is partly nostalgia, but I think they would have been better if we'd stuck with some of the ways they were. So the one for me is like, I very rarely, I've, I've never even seen my own wedding video, right? Mm. But um, when we were growing up, watching people's wedding videos was like Sunday afternoon. You yeah. do it, right? <laughs> you, know, you watch a wedding video or you watch a film or something like that, right? And um, I, when I show my, like when I've shown my daughter once or twice what wedding videos used to be, and you know, people in the back room of like a hall, and it's really small. You got all the vertical tables, all yeah. the women sitting over here, and then all the men sitting over there. Was yours a DVD or VHS? Uh, DVD. Oh, sorry. At least you you must have had like six or seven DVDs then. No, no, no. We had. Um, I I pulled a bit of a fast one. I told my mum <laughs> we had no reception, so I just told my mum like I've oh, booked a camera person, and then at the ladies' sangeet there was no camera person. And my mum goes, Where, when they come in, I was like, oh, no, 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 they, they can't make it today. But it's just Lady Sangeet. I'm just going to stick the camcorder up and record us ourselves, which is what I did. And then the night before, my mum said, make sure they're here because we've got to do the manya and stuff. And in the morning, they did the manya and all that kind of stuff. And um, I told my mum then, I was like, I haven't booked a camera guy. And she absolutely blew her top and said, what the hell? And I was like, I don't really watch videos. I don't want to, I don't want us to waste the money. And I want to do something different. I don't like doing what everyone else does. So no cameraman at my wedding. And she just absolutely went ballistic. And they pulled loads of strings and called some guy locally who did wedding videos half decent. But he came out and he did it. So I've got two DVDs. And I've, I, I, I kid you not, never once in my life watched my wedding video back. And the photographer was a mate of my sister's um, who did it. And she used to freelance and do like photos for fashion shoots and stuff. So she was quite good. But, you know, she turned up on the wedding day and I said to her, just take take shots of whatever um, natural shots. Mm -hmm. So you've got almost like no shots of us posing. It's just loads of weird ones of us from sides and stuff like that. But I thought that was brilliant. And so when I show my daughter stuff like that back and I'm not talking about my wedding video, when I when I show her stuff from the 80s. Right now and the nineties. Now you'll remember some of that stuff. Yeah, I remember it. That was boss. Like there's a couple of <laughs> videos we've got of cousins getting married where it's absolute pants band. Like it's a band, they were atrocious. But it's awesome because you just see loads and loads of people, most of whom are absolutely legless, just standing there cutting shapes and and like you know spinning like, back. Some of them you don't know if they're, they're dancing or having a heart attack. Is it? There's just there's just absolute no coordination in anything. But there's, it, always, there's always one person who wanted to do some flips and gymnastics. There was always a snake dance. That was the, yeah, that yeah, was yeah, the yeah, classic yeah. when that kicks in. Yeah, yeah. So, so all that stuff. When I show, when I show, like when I try and show not only my daughter but my nephew and stuff like that, and I'm like, this is what we grew up with, and this was the peak of Punjabi culture in the UK. It's only ever been downhill since I don't know. Uh, when did Jazzy B's Folk and Funky come out? For me, that's the peak, right? And after mm -hmm. that, it's downhill. I'm talking about Punjabi culture, not music. Yeah. But as, as a whole, it just started then getting too big. After that is when weddings started like, are we going to hire this place? And then next cousin had to go a little bit better and hire a bigger place and hire a bigger place. People don't even bother hiring town halls now. They go to bigger places. And I think yeah. what, what I'm trying to say is it's not about the money. It's what you lost. You lost the intimacy of your relationships of people you only ever saw at births, weddings and funerals who were your kith and kin, your closest cousins. And you only ever saw them at those events. And you lost that intimacy. You lost that, um, you lost that being really close together physically, but also mentally. And seeing people at their worst, 
leg loose doing a snake dance <laughs> they should be doing and um but also you know like someone's someone getting married was a big step whether it was the bride or the groom because they've got someone coming into the house you've got someone leaving their house it, you were you were up close and you had a front row seat to the most personal intimate moment of someone's life and you don't get that now mm. because you don't have that closeness and it's really far away and the caterers and the people serving every wedding we were at in my teenagers you've got to be the same we were serving if you were on the bride yeah, side yeah yeah oh yeah you, you, you the, the black bin liner was your best friend yeah and then <laughs> and then do the char party you know burning yourself pour the tea you're like you're a kid and the the, the kid leaves like about almost the same weight as you and you're trying to pour pour char you're burning you're spilling it all over that the white tablecloth yeah yeah because yeah, i'll just wreck the mic but it's it's exactly our experience though, right? And that's what you remember. I even remember getting into my 20s because I'm not that big. Mm. And late 90s, early 2000s, still having to do that at one or two weddings and still like half pouring tea over people's arms while I'm oh. going around the, men, the job it and thinking, oh shit, what have I done there? But then you still, like I said, you had this togetherness that's gone now. Now it's all removed and you you stand back and everyone's going for that that killer kind of photo look. You know, and it's not just weddings. That's just the most obvious example of it. But you can transport that to Nagarkirtans are not the same as they were 20 years ago, mm. right? Um, going to someone's fart is not the same as it was 20 years ago. Hell, going to someone's funeral now, I've been to more funerals than than I probably should have by my age. I've been to over 30 funerals, easy. Um, whenever you go to a funeral now, man, it's a weird experience. There's, there's always someone filming now. I find that really weird. You're filming, you're filming a dead body, like, what for? It's, it's not them. They've, half the time they've been stuffed with stuff because their face had gone in on itself. That's like I'm thinking of my own grand when she, when she passed away. They had to put stuff in her face because her face had withered so much and her jawline had just kind of completely gone in. And you, and, you, and you think, why are you filming stuff like that? This is an intimate moment. We're supposed to be here in the moment. Try and experience the moment. Experience that sense of grief and loss and what it means for you in your life, yeah. which is that... Your time's going to come at some point soon. The time, forget the time of your parents, your kids, your, uh, you know, your your siblings, your partners, your best friends. Your time's going to come one day. Like it's meant to. These moments were meant to culturally give you a bigger picture of what life's all about. And I think I think it's become harder as well, especially over the with the pandemic and and looking at some of the funerals online. I've kind of really struggled like when tuning into some of those things because it's like, even though at a funeral. You know, you could be really sad, but you know that there's people, there's there's power in the sangha, then it there's power with people with you at that side. And you can, you know, you you can share that the strength in order to, you know, to get through the day or to in, in time of reflection. But I think, you know, when you're seeing um funerals online, you 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 conveniently like you could kind of your fear of actually um experiencing those emotions, you you turn away or you 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 might say, look, that's enough for me now. I think there's a I think there's a lot of trauma that's been left even through this process because there's there's family there's friends people who've passed away that we haven't had a chance to go and do a source or like even have a conversation with um, WhatsApp is, uh, WhatsApp has been a really big thing in terms of like trying to bring people together as well um, but going through this whole trauma and this emotion is uh, there's going to be a there's got to be an exit point of that it's going to pop off somewhere. I think it's popping off now. I think it's been popping off for years. Pandemic is obviously a very focused way of looking at it. 
like as in it's, it's really intensified exactly as you said mm -hmm. because you don't have that opportunity to do the things you used to say to people and talk about and whatever else but again like I'm saying I don't know if it's just me and I just had a weird upbringing obviously or a weird way of looking at life but when when we had like a source in my house where someone personal died like my mum's brother her father people like that uh you'd have this period where someone close by would come and they'd cry and and lament and grief but then five minutes later they'd be talking about what's going on every day and they'd be laughing and talking and and you'd get on with it because you yeah. realize you realize, like I said, this is what I'm saying is culturally missing now. If if but if you've been born, then death is inevitable. And there's nothing that you can do about it. It's going to come at some point. You've got to be ready to deal with that. And exactly what you said, the closeness of being around people, just putting an arm around someone without even saying anything helps a lot with that, helps you deal with that. And that hasn't happened, obviously, over the last year and a half um and it is gonna it is gonna explode a little bit but i think it's exploding already and i think it's just going to be an intensification of what's been going on for years which is that we are we are removed from other people we don't empathize as much as we used to we're a lot happier putting 10 pound in a charity's coffers saying i've done my bit or going out once a month to do like a feed the homeless type thing right i'm i'm guilty of these things i did these things in my 20s and also in my 30s and I'm saying I learned from them, though, that that's not enough. That That's that's just you making yourself feel better for a minute, but it doesn't solve the problems we've got. You know, in, in the 21st century, like you said, we've got phones and all this tech that the kids are growing up with. They don't remember an era without internet, right? That's a scary thought. Mm. But, um, you know, there's kids now who, who, look at, um, who look at a mobile phone and, and think it's as natural as looking at a, a flower that you've picked off of the grass. That generation and, and these generations that are coming are going to really miss out on these closeness relationships that you have with people, the way to deal with things. And the fact that you've got to think about things a little bit more empathizing with people. And, and if we can have all that tech today, how come we can't solve such basic problems like homelessness? Mm. There should be no one in the United Kingdom. Anyway, there should be no one who's homeless at all should not exist in 2021, but yet, You've seen, you've seen the homeless explosion, especially in uh, in America, some of those homeless cities that, you, that that you've seen. And um I think when initially when lock when lockdown when lockdown one happened, we did see you know there was the government initiative to get all the people who are homeless. So it was achievable. The the NHS changed itself within like 24, 48 hours. It was like revolutionary at that time. I just want to just go back slightly, but um you talked a bit about the Punjabi culture, you've talked about the Sikhi culture. Where do you think that that clash is now? Or is there a time, is there a possibility where it can kind of live in coexistence? Because I think I've sort of felt that the, there's this huge polarization where you can't actually be a part of both. Some people are like, I don't know if I'm, did you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like, is there a way where that could be homogenized together or is it just still going to be a lifelong issue? The question is to ask is what is Punjabi culture? And different people will have a different answer to that. Yeah. Uh, and then to ask the corresponding question, what is Sikh culture? And again, different people will have a different answer to that. One of my um, friends, colleagues, uh, Narveer Singh, has done a lot of research into this. He's published a paper a number of times now in different places called What is Sikh Culture? And his paper, I thought, has gone to, to grounds where Sikh culture is better than anyone else's before. Just because you're a Sikh and you paint a portrait of Guru Nanak does not make that portrait 
or you as the artist part of Sikh culture. Sikh culture has to represent Sikh values as espoused through Gurmut and what that actually means. It means you've got to have a grounding in Gurbani. It means you've got to be the kind of person who's introspective, looking inside yourself to work out what life, existence, reality is all about. And then when you express yourself, and even there he put up parameters about what is Sikh culture that were really interesting. So I'd advise anyone who's looking for that, you can find that like just Google it and Narveer Singh and what is Sikh culture, you'll come across it. Um, so Sikh culture, I think, is kind of like, you know, is is not that arguable. It's not got a huge range to it. But Punjabi culture, man, there's going to be some people who really hate Punjabis, might be Punjabi themselves, who for, for whom Punjabi culture is misogyny, alcoholism, um, corruption, violence. That's what Punjabi culture is for them. That's not Punjabi culture for me. For me, Punjabi culture, the minute Guru Nanak was born, Punjabi culture became Sikh culture. And what that means is... Um, it, it means that Punjabi culture had to change and evolve from what it had been. And it's evolving all the time, right? So geographical based or ethnic based cultures change and evolve over time. But post Guru Nanak, uh, you see Punjabi culture start to evolve where they start to incorporate things like the legends they have, the history they have, the myths they have. And they try to tease out well, what was the real intrinsic value of that myth or that legend? And the best example of that is like the Kisse, uh, the true love stories from Punjab. So whether it's Soni Mehwal, uh, Ranja is the most common example. A lot of people don't know this, but um, Ranja is actually written about in a grant of the time, of, from the time of the Gurus, known as uh, Pai Gardas Ji's Vara. So Pai Gardas was a, a, a very high-level scholarly sect at the time of the Gurus, uh, Guru Angad to Guru Arjan, and he writes these vara, these ballads, and in it he mentions these people, he mentions part of Punjabi everyday life, and he bigs it up by taking out the intrinsic value that came from it, the real value, and the best example I can give that gives like maybe a story to this is um, in, in that 20th, early 20th century revival renaissance we had in Sikhi that I talked about in the Singh Sabalad, there was a famous writer by the name of Professor Puran Singh, now, Professor Puran Singh was, uh, anyone who doesn't know about him, Google him, like read up on him. He was a phenomenal bandha. He, went, he was studying at Tokyo University and when he found Sikhi again, basically, he went to Tokyo University, studied there. And he then met another one of these stalwarts of the Singh Sabha movement, a guy by the name of Paivir Singh, who's, who's an enlightened being, a novelist, poet in his own right. And he met him and embraced Sikhi again. And then Professor Puran Singh writes all of this great poetry, this philosophy, these great books. In one of his works, Professor Puran Singh says that Ranja was a pakka sek of the guru. Now, he's not saying that literally or physically. What he's saying is that Ranja is this person who's tapped into that part of your soul that most of us don't, which is that there is a, a uh, for want of a better word, there's this love or this thread that exists in, in life that is so strong and so overpowering and you become so passionate for it that um, everything else falls by the wayside, whether it's family, whether it's kith and kin or whatever else. And so he says that Ranja is a pura sekha Guru Gobind Singh. How can it be anything else? He tapped into that part of his soul that recognized this universal thread that connects people, that connects all of us and connects all of existence. So with that kind of thought in mind, um, Again, Professor Puran Singh says in another poem in, that he's written in Punjabi that um, 
Punjab, I can't get the full bit, so I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it basically says, Na Hindu ka, na Musliman ka, Punjab je vasda hai Quran de naate. So if Punjab is, if Punjab exists now, if Punjab is fruitful now, it's on the back of the name of the Guru. And what that means is when Guru Nanak came and when, when the Guru um, farms the land, the earth of the Punjab, it doesn't make it hallowed ground. It doesn't make it like, you know, um, it doesn't make it special religious ground. What it does is, though, it changes the way people think and they start realizing there's a different way to live your life. There's a way to exist where you can start getting outside of birth and death reincarnation where you can start solving problems that exist around us while you're still alive not pray to an almighty deity to come fix those problems for you mm. so you fix them yourself so when you ask me what's Punjabi culture to me that's Punjabi culture Punjabi culture became sect culture but that doesn't mean it became sect culture or oh, I've got a foot long dari and I've got a four and a half meter pug on and I've, you know this is my sikhi what what sikh culture and Punjabi culture where they intertwine is that you you have the most passion inside you to achieve and achieve does not mean worldly goods it's mm -hmm. what Pagat Farid wanted it's what Pagat Kavir wanted it's what Trilochan wanted what Namdev wanted it's what Ravidas wanted it's what all of those you know souls great souls wanted which is you want emancipation of the soul you want to feel complete and anything you do in life will never let you feel complete but Punjabis Punjabi culture started learning this very quickly over the last 500 years and they had it in them they were happy with their lot look at look at it now right like look at look at Punjabi farmers with the protest and everything that's going on mm. most of those pro most of those farmers although they might have family that have gone abroad and they want to go abroad at some point or whatever else at some level they're still quite comfortable with what they, they they're still quite not comfortable they're they're satisfied with what they've got in life they're satisfied not having the the things that we take for granted right I, i've got an i've got a cousin who still uses a nalka i don't know if people even know what a nalka is it's where you pump water yeah 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 i've, had, I've actually had a bath with that when i went to india first yeah yeah i i, I did too yeah. until 1999 we only had a nalka mm -hmm. so i was a 19 year old who bathed under a nalka mm -hmm. like um so i still remember that now everyone's got running water and they've got things in their things in their houses but not everyone does so some people are still quite content with their lot why because they because they start to realize it doesn't really matter it's not what's important what's important is what's going on up here and what's going on up here is connected to what's going on in here and how you perceive the world and i think that's where like you said it's an age-old question it will continue to be asked where does punjabi culture and Sikh culture intertwine how are they so different but i usually steer clear of that question now because more often than not uh, I'm going to be ruthless again, but I find most of the people having that debate, it, like on Twitter and places like that, most of those people having that debate are ill-equipped to answer the question, what is Punjabi culture and what is Sikh culture? Mm -hmm. For most people, Punjabi culture straight is just, look, they say, and this, that, and the other, bottle, blah, 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 daru. That's not Punjabi culture, bro. It's like a music video that someone created. You don't, you don't, tell me, do you think English culture is uh, typified by... Um, What's that? What's that little gingerhead munda with the anchor's name? Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Does Ed Sheeran <laughs> by English culture? I don't know, but he's a lot richer than me. 
doesn't. No, no, I, I get I get what you mean. So it, it's almost like we're playing up to the, the stereotypes are starting to become more dominant in the actual life. And then you start living into those stereotypes because you've been you, you've been you've been branded it so much or it's been floated around so much. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, Punjabi culture, all those people in Punjab who went out to the protest, all the people in Punjab right now when they're saying India's got this mass problem with COVID, they're running out of oxygen. That's sick values in practice. But make no mistake, Punjab's people do all that stuff. That means it's part of Punjabi culture, too. Mm. When, when, you know, when you see like 10, 15 people get on a tractor, chase a whole bunch of cops somewhere at a protest, they're Punjabi people. That's part of their Punjabi culture. You can't then say, oh, no, no, that was Sikh culture in operation. That's not how life works. You don't say this part of my life is the Sikh part and this part is the Punjabi part. Mm. The bit where I'm saying, you know, Darupiunga, blah, blah, blah. That bit is Punjabi culture. But the bit where I was doing something, you know, with valor, something brave, that was Sikh culture. It's not. They intertwined clearly, aren't they? Mm. Crazy to think the people who are taking like one in, I don't know how many houses now the statistics are, but how many people are, you know, addicted to heroin or something in Punjab. But I'm saying that they've got more Sikhi inside them here than most of us in the UK. Yeah. Mm. Madness to think like that, but it's true. I'm telling you, it's true. No, I was speaking to um, Steve Rolls in the in a, in a previous episode and about how at one stage it was like 65% of, of families um, in the past 12 months had somebody addicted to a, to a drug. And then like what's been good you know from what we've been told and what we're seeing is that with the with the whole pro- protest movements that that is kind of like coming down or, or we or we don't know some of those the headlines or the or the usage is going down i mean that's only anecdotal from from what i've seen in terms of like evidence is very sketchy to get out there i mean you've lived in punjab for a short while as around what was your kind of experience from there i mean like you went out to try and live the dream so to speak and then came back what was it what was it what was it like yeah i was trying to live the dream it's, it's strange most people would laugh at that it literally was living the dream for me though but it yeah. now is the greatest experience of my life and it's it's one that i'm going to go back to i just got to wait for my daughter to come of age and then I, yeah. i'm free of my responsibilities i can go yeah. um but i don't know what what the, be be more specific with me what you want to know about it like no because like we're at a time where there's like a lot of where there's a lot of kind of political discourse that's going there you can just see that there's the emergence of kind of like new social movements everywhere as well um that kind of revolutionary kind of spirit in terms of what that that you've got and then you clearly have kind of talked about it in some of your works even then what we what we've discussed about today you've actually taken that kind of theory into practice and you and you and you lived there for 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 a while what was that like and did it kind of match up to what you thought it was going to be yeah no i see what you mean okay sorry um yeah no i uh i well while i was there i managed this was 2008 stroke 2009 so it's going back a bit but while i was there i I managed to get some lecture spots at a couple of universities and so I, i i was like invited to do it i didn't go out looking for it but um, that was fun. And speaking to young people there and tell, you know, the first thing when they said, and this one kid just, just couldn't stop staring at me, like, like thinking I must be stupid. And he even said, he, he was a veterinary sciences student. And he said, you're, you're stupid. You shouldn't even be here. Like, what, what, why would anyone want to come here? 
And that typifies what I learned the whole time I was there. Everyone to a man wants to get out because it's the hardest life to live. And um, the difference I had, though, my experience of it the whole time was telling me, yeah, it's hard. A lot harder than here. Obviously, you haven't got your creature comforts and stuff. But imagine if it if if Punjab is hard, imagine what it's like living in Bihar, where half of Bihar over the last 20 years has migrated to Punjab. Imagine how bad it is in Bihar for Biharis to come to Punjab and say, we've turned up in heaven, mm. <laughs> a place we're trying to leave. Do you know what I mean? I always had that thought and thinking, well, wherever you go, there's going to be some hardship. Yeah. It's not easy living here. Paying your damn council tax every month does my head in. Don't know about you. Like, you know, the mortgage you accept and you think you're gonna to have to pay this, that, and the other rent if you're renting and, and bills. When you pay the council tax, first thing I'm thinking is, what are you doing with all this money? Seriously, right? And I, I live in an area that's quite well to do and it's got quite good services and stuff, but that's a hardship because that's money that goes out of your pocket every month. And I'm not a high earner. So living in Punjab was a good experience because you started to realize how wherever you are, it's gonna be difficult. And really what it is, is it's about you, where you are and where you're going to, some people are going to be uncomfortable no matter where they go. Mm. I was very comfortable here. I was very comfortable the whole time I was there. I liked me when I was out there. I I learned to shut up real fast. You don't speak like here. I can say what I want more often than not. Every now and again, you come up against someone where you think, oh, I better shut up or he's going to smack me now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but more often than not you can talk quite a bit and you can work your way around things Punjab you can't do that shit you you say some, you say one word out of place in the wrong space and like 10-20 people suddenly want to batter the living shit out of you and, and not they want to they're standing there hitting you so I like the kind of person I became I became more reflective I started quietening down a bit I started looking at life and enjoying it there's that romanticised side of it that I think a lot of Baladis have which is that, you know, uh, you know, in the weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With makhani and stuff like that. It, it's not like that. In the heat, like in the hot days, man, you get, like, I wasn't even there in heat. The, the longest, the latest in the summer I've ever been there is late April. And I was indoors most of the time. You were just in the shade. And then we did, we, I did some farming with my dad out there because he still does all of our kids like as much as he can. And I did some stuff with him while I was out there, like on my last trip. Uh, and man, I lasted about half an hour. And then, you know, when you say like Pasina comes, you're fully sweated and that. Forget that. It was, I literally started seeing double because it, it was about 38, 39 degrees and you're doing hard graft. No tractor or nothing. We were just digging something, right? Mm. And it was like, oh my God, this is hard. So the romanticized side of it goes out. But like I said, you adapt and you make do and you'd work out how to live. So like, you know, bringing it back into kind of uh, UK, you you could obviously see quite a lot of um, uh, new kind of courses. You see a lot of new organizations trying to do their bits and bobs and that. Do you think there's a time now where um, more organizations are kind of getting more unified or was it still those divisive splits are still there between different committees and different different kind of agendas? I think it's still it's it's very divisive still, and people have their mates and their their friends. I do too as well, mm. so I'm part of that problem as well. Um, I think it's going to stay that way as well because we're so divided on how we think things should operate and how we think who you who you should be able to speak to and who you shouldn't. And the root of the whole problem is that we spend more of our time focused on what other people are doing 
than on what we're doing. Mm. So take any organization, my organization, like um, you'll be more aware of what other people are doing than on what you're trying to produce and create. Mm. And when you see X, Y, I mean, I shouldn't say my organization. I don't mean Seek Education Council, but Najwani, like as in we'll be aware of what everyone's doing and we should really be just be focusing on what Najwani is doing. But that's not the way our brains really work. We're all kind of fighting for the same little slice of pie. And what, I does, see- what does Nojuani actually do then? That you know, you, you just mentioned it for those people who don't know what what the, your organization. How does that differ from the Sikh Education Council? So Nojuani is my company, and it's like my bread and butter. It's a business. So what we do is we write and produce content that's meant to be culturally relevant, opinion editorial, current affairs, cultural importance. We write. Um, we have a, a staff writer list of people who write for us every single week. And they write on topics to do with everything. There was an article we published last week about the president of Argentina. Uh, we're all very well read, if I do say so myself. People, we, we're like, you know, people who read journals and academic scholarly work, but more focused on how to, we read stuff that everyday people should be reading about politics and what's going on in the world. And we try and publish on that. And then some of the content we create is like, you know, this backdrop I've got is the backdrop I have to my cover to cover video series. Yeah. Where I introduce books of importance that I think people should read to do with Sikhi and Punjabi. So Nodjwani is a company like that. And it was supposed to be a company that was going to become a media company. We experimented a few times over the years with um, different like things to try. There was a period of time about 2016, 2015, where we were making videos like comedy videos as yeah. well as drama videos and stuff. And we were doing it every single day. And we were trying it out to see if we could build and grow. It never really took off and it still hasn't taken off. So I'm quite comfortable with where it's at now, where we just keep writing and publishing and doing stuff. And we do stuff every week, day of the week. But um, we just try and do that kind of stuff. But going back to what I was talking about before, like with organizations, like Nodjwani will still be where, aware of what, like if a new publisher emerges, like there was a new publisher publishing company that emerged um late last year uh and called Carlos house and i immediately wanted to know who was behind it what was going on unfortunately it was someone i know who reached out to me and told me what it was all about but i was even looking at myself as i was doing it and staring into that black screen where your computer you know when you switch off and you're looking in the black mirror and um i was thinking to myself Halia, like you didn't do any of your proper nojuani work today you just spent ages worrying about what a new publishing house was going to be producing I hope they're not going to produce anything that's going to be negative in my perspective for the community. Mm. What, a, what a shit way to live. So I'm always trying to correct myself on that. I really am, but it's hard to get out of those habits. And I think most organizations have that, not just Sikh ones, not just Punjabi ones, but anyone who's South Asian has that. And the problem comes from you're always afraid of what somebody else is going to bring to the table. And it's almost like we're all fighting for the same small slice of pie. And that shouldn't be the way we operate, but unfortunately, I think it's going to be the way it lasts. And I think unity is overrated, though, by the way, at the same time as well. <laughs> I, think, I think challenging, like competition is brilliant. I think having competing interests is great because it drives you to be better. Mm. Like you, you've started this podcast now after God knows how many years of talking about it. <laughs> People don't believe it. People think it's just only been a matter of weeks, but it is. Well, <laughs> like you should have been doing this. Five, six years ago, the first time I met you, you should have been doing mm, it again. But yeah. the fact that you've done it now is great, right? And what's going to keep you spurred on is when there's so many people with podcasts now. I've got a podcast. 
right? Mm-hmm. Not ones I do acknowledge on me, but I'm now part of a podcast called Brown Monday. Brown <laughs> Monday podcast, right? <laughs> um, but like we're doing that, because, but we've been talking about doing that for years mm-hmm. and we never got around to it. That is, our podcast is very different to yours. Mm-hmm. Ours is, and, and pretty much everyone else is, we're just four guys who used to sit around chatting shit about stuff and we said, let's film it and put it on the internet so that people can sh- throw shit at us for other shit we're chatting about. Mm-hmm. And not, not necessarily all negative. What I mean is like, yeah. you know, let's, throw our, let's not be scared of our views, put them out publicly. And so that's what we do. With your podcast, like, it's, it's, you're going to be taking different personalities the way I see it, exploring conversations with them, not necessarily about just what they do, but about life and what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's real interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Now, because there's going to be other podcasts that do the same thing you do, it's going to drive you to have better conversations, to up your game with how it's set out, to eventually, I hope, do things in person. Yeah, yeah. I think well, it's, it's quite interesting, this journey, because I, uh, I, I had an operation at the beginning of uh, beginning of this year. And I was just at a point where I was doing like conferences around all my all the drug and alcohol stuff and, and getting to the point. And I just thought, you know something, I think. Some I can't remember who it was. Someone passed away, and I thought, you know, it would have been amazing if I actually got the end questions. If I ever wanted to, like, it was silly. I always I had a couple of questions if I was gonna meet Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, or anything like. You know what I mean? I just had all these ones, and I thought, in some ways, there's some people that I, I that I want to speak to. Like even my dad, I've never had like a proper sit down conversation with my dad on like on certain subjects because he's just my dad and you know what I mean and then I just thought like I used uh, and then that kind of thinking was making me was uh triggering off other thoughts of other individuals who I've never known about them or always wanted to ask those questions and I genuinely didn't give a shit about who's going to watch it or whoever it's going to be or how it's going to put across but we got a mutual mate of mine who said uh, you know listen if you're going to do it you've got to try and do it the best you can so who's the best that you can see and I was just like, in my head, I was like, look, I want to do kind of a video bit. I want to do, like, have it on Spotify and all this. Um, I have no idea, literally, like, how it was done. It's just kind of, like, learnt through. I had a mate of mine, Bally Chima, who's got his own podcast. He's doing around mental health. Uh, sorry, not just about mental health, but like, lift your life. And um, and I kind of, like, was trying to help him start his. And I was like, you know, you got no excuses now to do your own bit. So yeah, I got to a bit where it's like, I'm not bothered about views. I'm not bothered about this. I'm just getting it to a point, but then just like natural evolution of saying like, okay, I need to get a better mic. I need to, you know, some editing software, which is going to be a little bit better for me. We were just talking about the background behind it is going to change. Um, you know, if it does get remotely, I think when you could pull in those people physically in that bit after the pandemic, after like, after it's lockdowns all lifted, then like, yeah, I'll probably go into more remotely, but I still kind of have it double option because for some people, you know, they don't want to necessarily come down and do that way. Um, well, you're going to go international yeah. at some point, you're going to have people from abroad. So that's going to be just doing it virtually. And stuff yeah, like yeah, yeah. So I've, you know, I've had a few conversations with people who I'm like interested, in. but it's been the way that I kind of laid it out is like all the people who I'm interested in. So you do have to kind of build up a little bit of following because I want to share these people who I know and share them with the world who like out there with um, a wide audience, yeah. and you need that to have a little bit of a following in order to, to do that. But you know, I mean, with, look, that's where, that's where competition comes in though. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. You're I'm looking not looking at people doing podcasts. It'll help. Yeah, yeah. I've seen, I've seen a few, seen a few of them and I, I love them. And I actually messaged them. I said, Oh, you know, that was really good. And, uh, but sometimes when you're in that competition mentality, 
people don't like giving you giving each other compliment or what they tend to do is that if they know something is shit the person will go to them oh yeah that was really good that was really good yeah. just to just to keep it going just to say like just stay in your lane you know you know you just stay where you are but i'm not i genuinely i'm just doing it out of my own kind of love it's therapeutic for me it's very cathartic when i'm doing like editing when i'm like trying to de-stress um and i and i enjoy it to be honest and uh, it's built up you know a, a few it's opened a few doors of other conversations but to i mean me, look, you're, you're a man after my own heart then like i said with nojuani our youtube channel has got like 4000 subscribers now yeah, we yeah. launched a youtube channel back in 2006 2007 we were one of the first people on youtube mm. and um you know we should have been much bigger by now i guess if you look at it a certain way mm. but i the cover to cover videos i do never number more than 100 views mm. i really don't care because mm. i'm not doing them to get a wide audience i'm not doing them to get a following i'm doing them because i want to put myself out there saying this is what i think about this book and i want to create almost like reading list for people to to pick up make life easier for them that wasn't so easy for me where i had to go buy half these books work out which ones are the good ones which ones are the bad ones and so that idea is really important i think in life not really giving a shit what other people think you've got to have a balance yeah. you can't chew up your own backside yeah, of course you don't you don't take criticism on board or you don't take other people's viewpoints on board but if you spend your whole life just thinking about other people like i was saying is a big problem with our organization like we spend our life focused on other people it's really detrimental to you as an individual but as an organization it won't so as a community our organizations are going to stay like that unfortunately that's why we've got three you know tv stations for the sikh community in this country um it doesn't mean you only had to have one the competition would have been good but all three of them are dire they're absolutely atrocious to watch they have substandard levels of production they have substandard levels of content um you know across the board not necessarily every single program or content they create but across the board and that's not a good reflection on our community that means that we don't really value quality we just go for it's on it's there it's better than nothing that's not good so hence why i say unity is a little bit overrated competition can help drive those things to a good place and for the community whether it's in a punjabi sense or the sikh sense or wider south asian um the biggest place where those organizations cause us problems is speaking to government so speaking to power and that's where it causes i think the biggest problems someone you know it's usually one individual one character one personality goes off on their own little wet dream of what they think sikhs should be or shouldn't be and tells the government that and then government starts invoking policy on us and we all start flowing down that road we all have to follow it that's where i see those are kind of problems that need to be fixed that's where a little bit of unity wouldn't go astray and you know there's got to be some baseline rules like for example in my opinion if you're not a sec and if you're not talking about gurmat you should never be allowed on a gurdwara stage period period i don't give a shit who you are if you're tantesi and you're uh, campaigning for re-election um you should not be allowed on the stage at slau gurdwara to go and say i'm labor party this is what we do because if we do that then we got to let the lib dem and the green party and the tory and everyone else go on stage and say the same thing we shouldn't be allowing any of you to do that gurdwara stage next to the guru granth sahib is just for the guru to speak i don't want the mayor coming down to speak i don't want a minister speaking and i don't want the police commander speaking and all this other rubbish that we went down a road those for me are baseline principles right but 
the problem we have is nine out of 10 organizers, let's say a whole bunch of organizations are watching your podcast now, or you cut that little bit I just said, right? And put it as like a little snippet, which you're doing. Yep. Like, you know, right? And um, <laughs> let's say a whole bunch of these organizations watch that. All of them are going to say, and they're going to switch off. As opposed to thinking to themselves, right, so what is he basing this on? And the base I'll tell you it's on is that in Paratan Mariada, so in historically, when the guru is there, you do not speak unless you're speaking about guru, about shabad, uh, about existence, what reality is. So when we've got anyone coming on stage at Gordware, they should only be speaking about those things, right? Um, now, when we have taddis, they're singing about those historical accounts. That's fine. You can have what is called kavishri, poets. They're speaking about expression of, you know, finding the guru or trying to find yourself, merging with what is existence and reality, all those things. That's fine, too. You've got katha vajiks, They're doing katha on the Shabad Guru and, and these different grants we have by Nandalal's Bani, uh, by Gurdas Jizwara, that kind of stuff, Dasam Grant. And then you've got Kirtaniya, right? Now, beyond them, no one else should speak. So much so that I started, like, I've been asked a couple of times to speak at people's weddings. Can you say something in English, right? And I've always done it. And now I've stopped doing it. The last time I was asked, I said, no, nah, not doing it anymore because it, it shouldn't even be happening. Now, that's technically still talking about Gurmat, just doing it in English. Problem is, if you get someone like me doing that, then there's no reason why someone can't say, yo, Ricky, can you speak at my wedding? I want you to say something at the Gordora. Mm -hmm. And then Ricky goes up and says, it's a great thing, blah, blah, blah. But what are you going to lean towards more? You're going to lean towards more the stereotype version, you know, of Sikhi and what it says about marriage. And then more importantly, though, you're going to talk about the couple. And that's what I was doing. I was talking about the individuals. What the hell has that got to do with coming from a Gordora stage? You're next to the Guru Granth Sahib. You should be talking about you know, this is this is the highest philosophy, the deepest stuff that exists out there in writing. It can emancipate a soul from here to there. It says stuff that, you know, the world is catching up to now. It was We were saying 500 years ago, what is existence? What is reality? And things like that. And it's so deep, like it shouldn't be belittled to have all this stuff alongside it. But we continue to perpetuate that and allow that to happen. Now, if all organizations come to some baselines that, OK, we're not going to allow that stuff to happen, but then we can have, uh, you know, uh, an organization that acts on behalf of Sikhs in the armed forces. And then you have an organization that believes that there should be anarchy and no Sikhs should ever vote for political organizations, like two separate ends of the spectrum. Then we can have all of those organizations flitting around doing what they want. Yeah. But we're not going to have that. We're just going to have the status quo. Yeah. It's never going to disappear. It's going to stay there. So we're coming towards the end of this, Harvey. Um, so the, the the podcast is called The Bandwagon. And this is your chance. Is there anything, that any bandwagon that you want to jump on or anything that you want to get off your chest? This is a, a bit of a free space for you to, to mention anything that I haven't talked about. To be honest, Ricky, that's probably what I've been doing for the last hour and a half. I was gonna say, I was gonna say the last one sounded pretty much it. So yeah, that's pretty close. So, I love the fact that at the start I said, look, I'm talking less and less, but I did caveat it with <laughs> I talk more than most people, so I'm still talking a lot. But this is me, believe it or not, this is me now talking a lot less than I was talking 10 years ago. No, that was good because then I'd have to like get a bigger storage hard drive just to, to hold it and and yeah, <laughs> whatever it is. All right, then Really, really, really uh, thankful for you to, um, you know, share some time with us today. And, um, you know, it's been really educational. Um, if you want to you know, plug any kind of like socials, I know you're not an, a social kind of guy, but is there any way you could kind of direct people to kind of get more information about yourself? 
Um, if you want to know anything about me and the stuff I do on a day-to-day -day basis, you just go to nojwani.com, N-A-U-J-A-W-A-N-I.com. Um, we put out stuff every single week, every single um, no, day of the week almost. Uh, we're not on social though anymore. That's a decision we've taken. Um, just sick and tired of social media. So uh, nothing on there. If you're interested in the Sikh Education Council stuff, I said, check that out. You can Google it and you'll find it. But if you go to the website, theseekway.com, and at the moment, the SEC doesn't have a huge social media presence, but we've got a whole team of people who apparently are building the whole Instagram side of it. So um, there'll be stuff on some social media stuff under the Seek way as well. Uh, th thanks to you for like giving me a chance to chat. We've talked quite a bit deeply mm. sometimes in the past and I've taken up your time a lot. Nah, nah, nah. I, I appreciate you giving me the platform because not many people do. Uh, nah, it's, I, I'm And I, I will be inviting you back quite regular. So like, obviously um we can kind of sense check anything that's that's happening as well so i'll try and make it more of a conversation the next time i'm on no 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 it's fine I, you know because you're genuine no 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 because no. you're genuinely one of the interesting guys i like chatting to you because you've got <laughs> as me though you've got so many different influences behind you mm. and you've got loads of the punjabi side of it but you've got this thinking man sex side of it which i've i, I don't really stay in touch with many people but you're one of the people i try and talk to a lot because we have good conversations yeah it's the hard you're one of the hardest guys to even get in contact with so it's like it's amazing so, <laughs> no, I just, so i'm saying all that because i just wanted the audience anyone who gets to this bit this is another bit cut this out as a snippet if you don't listen to the whole hour and a half because like, oh my god then in future episode if i come on i'll promise i'll make it a whole conversation between us like we have on the phone and no 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 it's fine man i loved it i loved it i really enjoyed it no but thanks again Arf. all right mate no worries. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.